Our scripture today comes from John chapter 13, verses 34 through 35. I give you a new commandment, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Church, you're going to have to up your game. Because I don't know that I've ever had anybody interrupt a sermon to ask if they could close at the end of their service with prayer. And I know I've never had anybody cry because they didn't get to close in prayer. So y'all got to up your game a little bit. So we're continuing to look through Jesus' last week on earth. And today we're going to be looking at Thursday, the Thursday of Jesus' last week on earth. This is actually, if you'll remember, this is the, the last night that Jesus will spend on the earth before his death and his crucifixion. And how did he choose to spend this time? His last night. He chose to spend it with his friends, his disciples, celebrating uh, this thing that we call Passover. So as we've been journeying through uh, this life with Jesus, this last week of his life on earth, we've, we've looked at each day and, and looked and observed what Jesus did and, and why he did it. And we remember we, we looked at Sunday, Palm Sunday, at how Jesus rode into Jerusalem victorious. Then we looked at Monday when, when Jesus went in and kind of shocked everybody and he flipped over tables and he drove people out of the temple with, with a whip that he made in his hand. And then Tuesday, we saw how Jesus taught the crowds and taught his disciples. And then last week, we looked at Wednesday when in a beautiful expression of reckless abandon, a woman anointed his feet. But on that same day, we also witnessed Judas in a moment of reckless abandonment left Jesus to betray him for 30 measly pieces of silver. And that brings us to today. That brings us to Thursday of Jesus' last week. For centuries, the church has, has called this day Monday Thursday. Not Monday Thursday. You'll embarrass yourself with your friends if you do that, okay? It's Monday Thursday. And Monday is actually a Latin term uh, which... Uh, means it roughly translates to commandments. So on this Thursday, Jesus issues three commandments or mandates, and that's why we call this day Monday Thursday. And we're gonna actually be looking at all three of those today. But also on this day, two significant and important things happened. The disciples and Jesus celebrate Passover together, and then we witness Jesus and the disciples gathering in the Garden of Gethsemane to pray before his betrayal. And if you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what you're gonna find is all four gospels, they share quite a bit of details about this night, which kind of gives us a clue about the significance of what's going on. And as we get closer to the cross, we begin to see more and more details coming out about Jesus. The intensity of information begins to, to rise up as we get closer to this pivotal moment, both in Jesus' life and really in, the, in the, a pivotal moment in human history. 
And we see Jesus sharing more and more with the disciples, which also means sharing more and more with you and me what he means by Messiah and how he intends to be king. And throughout this journey, we, we the readers have had to really wrestle with figuring out what type of Messiah Jesus really was gonna be, what kind of king he was gonna be, what kind of kingdom he intended to usher into existence. And, if, if, and then another question, if Jesus was gonna be king, what kind of subjects did he intend for you and me to be? How did he intend for us to act? How did he intend for us to participate in this kingdom that he's bringing into existence? And as we read these stories, the gospels force us purposely to deal with Jesus. Jesus cannot be ignored. Jesus is front and center and who we decide that Jesus is, is gonna determine how we serve him, how we worship him, how we see him ushering in this kingdom. Who we decide that Jesus is makes all the difference in the world. Theologian Thomas Oden, he describes the significance of this decision about who Jesus is. He describes it this way. Christianity arose out of a particular human life ending in a disturbing and terrible death, then resurrection. The meaning of Christianity is undecipherable without grasping the meaning of Christ's life and death and living presence. It is clear that we cannot ignore Jesus. We have to understand who Jesus is and what he intended to accomplish in his life and his death and his resurrection. That's what we're exploring here on Monday, Thursday. But on this Monday, Thursday, we also know that it's Passover. So we can infer that much of this day, this, this last day of Jesus' life here on this earth before his betrayal and his crucifixion and uh, his death, uh, there would have been a lot of time spent preparing for this Passover meal. This was, was the most important Jewish celebration. Passover is actually the bedrock of Jewish beliefs and celebration. There would have been people everywhere in Jerusalem, everywhere. From all over the Mediterranean, they would have rushed in to, to, to celebrate Passover. You can just imagine the excitement in the air. And of course, as, as people gather together, just think about your own family meals, Thanksgiving, Christmas, as, as everyone kind of gathers together and they sit at the table, what do they talk about? Politics, right? Everybody's favorite topic, right? That's what happens. They, they get together and they're gonna be talking about politics. And here, here's why we can kind of, again, uh, infer that. Because you see, Passover is a celebration of God's promise and fulfillment of rescuing his people from slavery in Egypt. Okay, you with me? The whole point of Passover is to celebrate what God did to set his people free from Pharaoh. So in this context, on this Monday, Thursday, they're celebrating Passover 
the, the, the holiday that's surrounded about the significance of their freedom while they're under Roman captivity. So they're supposed to celebrate what God did to set them free in the context of being ruled and controlled by Rome. Now, don't get me wrong. Uh, Rome was nowhere near as cruel and, and overpowering as Egypt, but they still weren't free. So you can, you can guess that that's, that's where this conversation came from. They were, they were going to be talking about the Messiah, this promised Jewish king that was supposed to come and set them free. Expectations this particular Monday, Thursday would have been exceptionally high because there would have been whispers and rumors. Have you heard about this guy from Nazareth? This guy, Jesus? Have you heard about him? Did you hear that he describes himself as the son of God? Did you, did you hear that he's telling people that their sins are forgiven? Could he be the one? Could he be the Messiah? Could this Passover finally be the one where we experience the freedom that God promised us? So you have to imagine that that's the kind of talk that would have been whispered, almost, almost too afraid to say too loudly that the, the Romans might hear. They'd have been asking, gathered together for this meal. Do you think Jesus is the Messiah? Do you think, you think he could be the promised one? Could this be the last year that my children have to live life under the rule of Rome? Could it be? And see, the disciples would have been anxious too because the disciples didn't know how to handle Jesus either. They never knew what he was gonna do. They didn't, uh, you know, they didn't expect him to flip over tables and, and to, to curse a fig tree. So they, they never knew what Jesus was going to do. So, so they were anticipating and watching to see what Jesus might do on this Passover as well. And like I said before, much of this day would have been spent in preparation for what was gonna happen later that day in the meal for Passover. And the gospels tell us that this, this meal was celebrated in the upper room of someone's home. Now, I don't know about you, but when I have a lot of company coming over, what, what do we got to do? I got to get into the garage and dig through all of my junk and find the card tables, right? To set up in the living room and the dining room and maybe kind of close to the kitchen so that everyone has a place to sit. That's not how things were done in in. Uh, and at this time during Monday, Thursday. And, and this time uh, in the first century, eating and gathering together for a meal like this would have looked quite a bit different. Uh, we have a picture. Let me sh- go ahead and put that up here. What, this is called a triclinium. And, and in this time, in, in Jesus' time there in first century, they would have eaten at a large U-shaped table. And those who were invited as guests, they would have sat on the outside perimeter of that, that U-shaped table, and they would, have, they would have laid down. And typically, they would have rested on their left hand and eaten with their right, which to me sounds terribly uncomfortable. I don't know whose idea this was. Maybe it like, helped like, keep calories down. I don't know. But, and then what they would do, it would, be, it would have been considered rude because you're laying down here. It would have been considered rude to, to eat at this table with, with your shoes on. So you were expected when you, when, you, when you laid down here to take your shoes off. Now at the center of this, of this U-shaped table, of this triclinium, that center place would have been considered the seat 
of honor. That's where Jesus would have sat. That would be the seat of honor. And then to the right and to the left of that would be positions of, of recognition, positions of honor. You're sitting to the right or to the, to the left of the host. So that's where everybody wanted to sit. And by far the worst place that you could be invited to sit is way on one of the far ends opposite the, the, how, the person whose house you're at. That would have been the, the place of least honor. So while they were eating this Passover meal, so again, we have Jesus and his disciples. They're eating this Passover meal at a table shaped much like this. Believe it or not, on this last night that Jesus was going to spend before his, his crucifixion, an argument breaks out among the disciples. An argument about who was going to be honored in the kingdom. The disciples sitting with Jesus this, this last time to have this last meal are arguing about who is the greatest or who should be regarded as the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. We find that in Luke twenty two twenty four. 24, it says, a dispute also arose among them as to which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest. So in other words, who's gonna get to sit on the right and the left of Jesus? I mean, it's no wonder that Jesus didn't have a receding hairline from all the times he must have ran his fingers through his hair in frustration at his disciples. He spent all of his time with these men telling them what it's supposed to look like in the kingdom, that you're supposed to serve, that you're supposed to be humble, that you're supposed to sacrifice. And here on the, on the eve of his betrayal and this last meal that he's having with his, the people he spent the most time with, they get into an argument about who's going to get to sit in the places of honor next to him. I mean, I don't know about you. <laughs> I don't know how Jesus didn't just lose it right then and there. He spent all of his life trying to help them understand what kind of king he was, what kind of Messiah he was going to be, what was going to be expected of those who served in his kingdom. And those who were closest to him missed that and got into a, a verbal argument about who's going to get to sit on his right and who's going to get to sit on his left. So I think Jesus in that moment saw that he's going to have to do something a little different. So instead of telling them what kind of Messiah and king he was going to be, Jesus decided to give them a visual example. So John's gospel tells us that, that Jesus gets up from the table, gets up from the place of honor. He takes off his robe and he ties a towel around his waist. And as Jesus is, is doing this, you, you have to imagine the disciples would have been scared, right? They just saw Jesus flip tables over and make a whip. They're like, oh no, what's going to happen? So they, they had to have been terrified, but they also had to have been confused. The rabbi, the one of honor, is getting up and putting a towel on, and what's he going to do? And so again, like we said before, in the, in the first century, we'd have, we have to remember that it would have been impolite to eat with your shoes on. 
And again, Kim did a great job of helping us understand that these men would have been walking all, all day in sandals and, and there wouldn't have been a great sanitation system in the city. So who knows what it would have been on their feet at this time in this place. So in most Jewish homes and really in most homes in general, there would have been a basin uh, and a pitcher by the door. And so the expectation would have been when, when you entered into the home that if there wasn't a servant there to wash your feet, that you yourself would wash your feet after you take your shoes off. Because there would be nothing worse than to be laying on your left elbow trying to enjoy your meal and instead of smelling the delicious food set before you, you smell the, the feet of the person next to you. Or worse yet, your own feet, right? Right? So this would have been a way of being polite and kind of being clean and, and a way of, of being refreshed. But here's the dangerous part that also came along with this custom. So if there was no servant and you entered into the home and there's the, the basin and the pitcher uh, and you're washing your own feet and in the midst of doing that, another guest walks in, guess what? The cultural expectation would be for you to go ahead and wash that person's feet. So what could be worse than getting caught washing your own feet and then there's like five more people coming in and now you're washing everybody's feet? Who could, why would you want to do that? So we get the sense that all the disciples said, it ain't worth it. I'll just smell my stinky feet and I'll let everybody else smell my stinky feet too. Let's just bypass the, the pitcher in the basin and we'll just go right into the dining room. And that's what they did. You see, because... For them, and their opinion, doing that, washing someone's feet, even one of their, their brothers that they're, they're walking and journeying with Jesus with, that was beneath them. They were disciples of the Messiah, after all. <laughs> I'm not going to wash my own feet, because then I might have to wash John's, Peter's. I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. So the, the basin and the, the pitcher just sat to the side unused. But then the gospels tells us that, that Jesus got up, he wrapped a towel around himself, he takes the pitcher and the basin, he begins to pour water into the pitcher, and then he begins to walk towards John who was most likely sitting to his right or to his left. And you have to imagine what the disciples were thinking at this point. You have to think, they were thinking to themselves, what did John do to make Jesus mad? Jesus is about to make John wash all of our feet. How humiliating for John. Wow. We're going to get to just make fun of him about this, you know, for days and weeks and months. And you think John too was thinking, what, what did I do? Why do I have to be the one? But in a moment that shocked everyone, and probably cut them to the heart as well. Jesus knelt and washed John's feet. So it would have humbled them that the rabbi, the one of honor, would have washed their feet, but it would have cut them to the heart as well because Jesus was doing what they should have done. They should have been the one washing Jesus' feet he was the king. He was the Messiah. They believed he was the son of God. 
And yet, out of fear of having to serve their brother or sister who was there in the, in the presence, they refused to wash their feet, they refused to wash Jesus' feet, and they missed out. They missed out on what it meant to be a part of the kingdom. Because they saw serving as something that was beneath them. Something that they weren't really supposed to do because, again, they were disciples of the Messiah, after all. And so one by one, Jesus makes his way uh, through the disciples, washing each of their feet, and then he gets to Peter. We think, most likely, Peter was in the seat of least honor because Peter didn't know when to be quiet and not talk and put his foot in his mouth. And so Jesus gets to Peter, and Peter says, you are not going to wash my feet. Now, he says that because he couldn't imagine Jesus doing something so lowly. He was too great to be washing feet. How would a rabbi humble himself in such a way that he would wash the feet of his disciples? See, Jesus was trying to set an example for his disciples. He was telling them what type of king he was going to be, and he was telling them what kind of subjects he expected for his kingdom. He wanted to show them that no one was above serving others. To be Jesus' subjects meant that there was no one who was above being a servant and there was no one too lowly to be served. Jesus wanted them to understand that. And in this moment, he actually gives them one of three mandates. He tells them in John 13, so if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also must wash one another's feet. For I've set you an example that also you should do as I have done for you. Church, this this is a mandate for us today as well. You have been called. If you wanna be a part of the kingdom, you have to follow the example of the king. And the example that Jesus gave us was to kneel, humble ourselves, and wash each other's feet. But I have to tell you, unfortunately, I don't see many of us clamoring for the pitcher and basin. I don't see many of us arguing over who gets to serve. Most of the time, I see us rushing in here so that we can get to our seat. And then we're frustrated when someone's in our seat. And church, let me just tell you, that's just, not, that's just not sermon talk. That happens. I was at a church once, and I was attending the service because I was applying for a job at that church, a ministry position. So I attended the church to kind of get a sense of the service, And someone came and got on to me because I was sitting in their seat. It happens. We're not arguing over who we get to serve or who we get to sacrifice for. We're arguing over what I deserve and what I've earned and what I should get. I just want you to take a moment to think about that. In your own life, is your first instinct to expect to be served or is your first instinct to look for a way to serve? We need to really think about that.
Because I, what I worry about is one of the challenges of, of 21st century church is that uh, we have fallen into this bad habit of just consuming spiritual goods instead of being the hands and feet of Christ. We've allowed ourselves to believe the law that it's up to the pastor and to the staff of the church to produce the goods so that I, the church attender, might be able to consume those goods. That's the lie that, that we've bought into. When Jesus teaches that if you're a part of the kingdom, you're expected to serve. And if you go into scripture and you look into the gospels, what you find is, is pastors and leaders are called to equip the church, you and me, to do the work of the ministry. My job is not to produce some, some goods for you to consume. My job is to encourage you, challenge you, prod you, and cheer you on to do the ministry that God has equipped and called you to do. I was pausing for an amen, but I'll move on. Thank you. Thank you. So in this moment, Jesus gives us another mandate. In, in John 13, 34 and 35, he says, I give you a new commandment that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And I, I want to stop here for just a second. And point out what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that they will know that you're my disciples by your awesome worship team, which we have an awesome worship team. It doesn't say they'll know that you're my disciples by how great you preach or how many people come to your church service or how many times in a row you go to church or how faithfully you tithe. All of those are important. But what it says is people will know that you're my disciples by how you love. See, that's what the disciples missed. They had an opportunity to love Jesus and wash his feet. But the manner in which they were presented to show their love, they felt was beneath them, so they rejected it. And they missed out on being a part of this kingdom that God was calling them to be a part of. Now, the third mandate is quite confusing and challenging because in this third mandate, what happens is Jesus takes and he changes the, the Passover meal. As Jesus is celebrating this Passover meal, uh, he actually changes the custom. He transforms the, the Passover, the Seder meal, this tradition that the disciples had known for generations. In fact, they had practiced and participated in this Passover, the Jewish people, for 1,200 years. And Jesus changes it. Can you imagine the shock? And the, 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 the sense of audacity that people would have felt when they heard that Jesus changed this tradition that had been practiced for 1,200 years. I mean, I know pastors who almost got fired for changing the font in the bulletin, okay? And here Jesus is, is uh, changing something that has been in place for 1,200 years. But what, it, what, the, what the text tells us is, is during the meal, Jesus takes unleavened bread and he's looking at all of his friends, the ones who wouldn't wash his feet, the ones who he knew would betray him and abandon him. And he took, this was not in, the, in the, the Passover text. He takes it and he breaks this unleavened bread. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. On that same night, he takes a cup and he, he looks at all of his disciples, knowing that, that none of them wanted to, to wash each other's feet or wash his feet. And they're arguing over who was going to sit on his right and who on his left. And he he presents a cup of wine. He says, this is my blood. 
Again, this was not in the Passover text. Jesus is changing it. This is my blood, which is poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sin. See, what was the point of the Passover? The Passover was a celebration of how God set his people free. But it was also, it was also a reminder of what God did to set them free. Because see, the bread was unleavened because God told them, hey, when I set you free, you're not gonna have time for the bread to rise. You're gonna have to be ready. You gotta be ready. Bake some bread that doesn't have leaven. You gotta be ready. It's gonna happen quickly. And, he, and God promises them four things that they're supposed to acknowledge and celebrate in the, in the Passover. You can find this in Exodus 6, 6 through 8. He promises that uh, he'll free them, he'll deliver them from slavery, he'll redeem them, and he'll bring them into the land that he swore to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But in that Passover meal, they were also supposed to remember what happened in Egypt. Do you remember? In Egypt, God had, had declared this curse on, on Pharaoh that the angel of death was gonna pass through the land and that um, the, the angel of death was gonna claim the life of every firstborn son of, of men and of animals. And that anyone who wanted to protect their family were to sacrifice a lamb and take the blood of that lamb and put it on the doorpost of their home. And that at, on, the, on the night that this happened, when that angel of death was, was moving through the city, anywhere that it found blood on the doorpost, the angel of death would pass over that home because the lamb had been slain. The lamb had been slain so that the firstborn was saved. See, Passover now, Jesus has reinterpreted it because he is the lamb. The only begotten son of God. So now we celebrate with Holy Communion that the only begotten son of God was slain so that we might be saved from death. So I wanna invite the worship team to come back up. Underneath your chairs, you should find communion elements. Don't panic, it's not the first of the month. This is an opportunity of remembrance. Jesus said that, right? Do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. So as we, as we prepare for these elements, I, I wanna ask you to do something. I wanna ask you to remember all the things that Jesus has done for you. But especially today, as we take this, this um, holy meal, I want you to remember that the one who prepared this meal served you first is inviting you to be a part of his kingdom and to follow his example and serve others. So Father, we do pray that you would make uh, this, this simple bread and this, this simple uh, juice a means of grace for us. That we might remember that you humbled yourself and died on a cross. You served us and set a great example that we could follow as we serve others and usher your kingdom on this earth as it is in heaven. Pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
So if you'll do this for me, uh, at the bottom of the cup, there's a little tab. If you'll peel that back, that'll give you access uh, to the bread. And if you'll just hold that bread up, let me know that you're ready. Church, Jesus is offering his body for you. Now, if you'll peel back that top portion, they'll give you access to the, to the juice and hold that up so I know everyone's ready. Church, Jesus' blood that he willingly split, spilled for you and for me. Father, now may we worship you for the manner and in the glorious way that you served us. In Jesus' name, amen.